go ahead and get someone to pray for us this morning, and we will dive right in. So who would like to talk to the Lord on behalf of everyone in this particular room? Thank you, Emily. <laughs> okay. Dearly Father, Lord, just thank you so much that um, we're able to be here and have fellowship and uh, have Sunday school that we didn't have for um, forever, it feels like. Um, Lord, I just pray that we take advantage of that and just remember everything that you teach us because we have it for a reason. Um, and that means that you want to share something with us. And Lord, I pray that we just remember that and do what you ask us to do today. I love you in Jesus' name. I pray. Amen. Amen. All right. So <clears throat> this is the this is the last uh, of the three messages that we're doing on when Satan speaks, um, and I think it's actually been a very interesting study in general. I, I really, you know, thinking back on it, whenever we were trying to figure out what we were going to do. Um, you know, Sunday school was going to start and we only had three weeks. And so I'm thinking, you know, what in the world are we going to do for three weeks? And this one kind of popped in my mind. And I threw it out to the rest of the leaders and they're like, yes, let's do that. And little did I know how well it was going to fit in with the stuff that we're doing on Wednesday, the stuff that we're going through in the guys' study on Friday nights, the camp theme, the circumstances that are surrounding just life and all this stuff that's been happening over the past couple weeks. I mean, it's just been unreal. Um, so I'm just very thankful. I'm very thankful. And so I know when things like that unfold, it gives me great confidence coming in to teach something like this because I know it's exactly what God wants us to, to learn because uh, this is how he works. And so, um, you know, just thinking back over the past couple of weeks, what have been some of the, the highlights for you? Looking back on, you know, the Satan's goal number one in Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve and Satan's goal number two with Job from last week, what have been some of the highlights for you that has stood out to you that you're like, man, I didn't quite think about that, or it affected something within your week that, um, you know, maybe you were just under some sort of an attack and the things that we talked about just kind of hit home with you, or maybe it's a struggle that you have where you just utterly failed and you're looking at it like, oh my gosh, that's such a conviction, I need to do better next time. Anybody? Yeah. Um, like when you talked about how Satan is always the author of confusion, like yeah. that really stuck out to me because, like sometimes I'll be like, oh, like is this what God's going to do? But then I don't like I don't have like certainty about it, or I yeah. have certainty about a certain decision. And yeah. it's like hearing that, I'm like, okay, if I don't have like clarity, yeah. then Satan's the one trying to confuse it all up. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because anything that God wants you to do, you'll be confident. Like, you, your emotions might be getting in the way because you might be afraid, but it's clear. Like, you know exactly what you need to do. Yeah, for sure. That's good. All right, what else? Yeah. Just how Job had such a testimony that got the two, like you said, the two most powerful beings in the universe were talking about it. Yeah. And saying, like, oh, well, can you really make him fall? Well, no, he's a perfect and upright man. Yeah. <laughs> And then, like, with all the tests that Satan tried to do on Job to get him just to curse God. Yeah. Which, in our culture, is pretty normal. Yeah. For people to do that. Yeah, but for he, sure. He refused to even do that. Yeah. That's good. And I think a lot, for a lot of us, you know, it, it doesn't take much for us sometimes to question God, you know? Um, something unfolds that we just don't like or it makes us feel uncomfortable or we're like, why God? And here you have Job who loses literally everything. And he's like, no, I trust God. Like, I know exactly. You know, and so that he's such a great testimony for us to look at, for sure. Yeah. Good. What else from the past couple of weeks? Let's get two more people. Yeah. Just with everything that's happened and the tragedy that happened last week, like it really made me think about, you know, 
know, like, why would God allow something like that? I know he, like, allows everything for a reason. Yeah. But um, I don't think it's, like, a coincidence that you talked about Job. Uh, like, that day, I feel like it made, it helped, like, the situation make more sense. And just, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the Word of God is always, I mean, it's always reliable. It's always relevant. I mean, it always meets us where we're at. The issue is if we're going to be getting in the Bible. That's the issue. And our heart attitude. Because you can get in the Bible, and it still doesn't mean anything. I mean, it always comes back to your heart attitude. But it always meets us right where we're at. I, 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 that floored me last week. And it totally changed the way I communicated the lesson. I mean, even from what I prepared in going into that week, and then Saturday, all that unfolding, and then me teaching the next morning. I mean, it was just... I don't know. It just hit me completely different, and I really needed it last week, that's for sure. All right, one more person. What else? <clears throat> one more. Jamie. Um, I just love that, you know, the three times that God put something in the Bible around Satan's speaking was exactly what we need to know about him yeah. in order to combat him. Yes. And it's no more and no less than what we need. It's just simple and elegantly put. And God's just awesome. That way. Like, he doesn't focus on Satan. He doesn't make Satan the focus. But he's like, here's what he is. Here's how you deal with him. And here's yeah. like, you know, how you can proceed in your life. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And again, the Bible gives us everything that we need. Everything. And that's a good lead-in. So let's, let's look at the review again, because we talked about this over the past couple weeks. Um, but it really began with the fall of Lucifer, you know, and understanding. And this has been a conviction to me, and I've even used this with my own kids. You know, when we are in rebellion, if we're, if we're in a situation where somebody is an authority over us, and we don't like it, and then we act out upon it, you're acting like Lucifer. You're acting like the devil. Because that's exactly what he does. And I'm telling you, with my kids, that hits them square in the face. We're like, wait a minute. I'm acting just like Lucifer when he fell. And that should be a conviction to you. It should stop you in your tracks when you're, when you're living and you're making decisions and you're going against God's will for your life. But it really began with him. And sin began with him. And that led into all the disarray that we have now. And that led into the battle for the throne. And that's the theme of the whole Bible. The whole Bible is all about this battle for the throne. And there's two thrones. What's the first one? Or what's one of them, I should say. Not first. But what's one of them? The kingdom of God, which is the throne inside of... You, you and I, the spiritual throne that sits right here in the midst of you, God wants to rule and reign in you, in and through you, spiritually speaking. And then, what's the second one? Kingdom of heaven, which is the? The physical kingdom that God wants to establish and that he will establish on the throne in where? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And so he's going to do that. So those are the two thrones, and it's always been a battle for those two thrones. From the very beginning, if you studied out in the scripture, Lucifer was the king over both of those kingdoms. And when he fell into sin, it went away. And then when God restored everything again, he gave both of those kingdoms to Adam. And then where do you find Lucifer? Coming right in between to take those thrones away. And then the whole story of the Bible is God restoring that which was lost. And he's going to do it. And he did that through the cross. He, he established which throne? 
the kingdom of God, and now we can freely allow God to come in and rule and reign on the inside spiritually. And then in the future, after the tribulation period and everything, he's going to come and he's going to establish the kingdom of heaven upon the earth. So he's going to do that. But the Bible is all about the battle for the throne, and it really begins with, with Lucifer. And then thirdly, Satan is the author of confusion. So that's been your blank for the past couple weeks. That's your first blank on your study sheet. Satan is the author of confusion. One of his main tactics in your life is to create a circumstance that fosters confusion. If he can get you confused, he can get you off balance and he can take you out. And so you have to know that. You've got to know your enemy. How in the world can you overcome your enemy if you don't know his tactics? You've got to know your enemy. You have to. I remember back when I played basketball, you know, we would study film. And we would go through not only our plays and the things that we did that were wrong, but we would also study the teams, the other teams, and what they would do. And I remember that we would even study their plays, and we would know, okay, this is the play that they often would run. And we'd try to figure out defensive plays to come against them. And it made us better, and we were ready for something when it was coming, rather than playing the game and then getting caught off guard and then making adjustments. There was always those things that you couldn't really plan for, but there are certain things that you absolutely can plan for. And God is so good give us everything that we need to overcome the devil and all the things that he wants to throw at us through our flesh, through the world, and through himself. All right, and then we talked about the first week that the first goal of Satan, and we saw this in Genesis chapter 3, is to make you question, contradict, and change the Bible. If the devil can remove the authority of the scriptures from your life, he can have his way with you and do anything that he wants. Because you do not have enough power and strength on your own to make it through. There's no way. You have to have the wisdom that comes from the scriptures. And if he can pull this away from you, then he can do anything he wants with you. And he can make you, I mean, you'll be deceived on, on anything and everything. You will. And so if you are not consistently in the scriptures, and I'm talking, remember, quality time, not quantity quality, that you spend time with God. It's not that you spend time reading the Bible. That's ridiculous. Reading the Bible does not make you a Christian, nor does it make you a better Christian. It's about spending quality time with God, like with meeting with another person. And it's the same with relationships. You can have a friendship with someone that's only surface level. Hey, how you doing? Oh, I'm good. Great. How was your week? Awesome. And you can have all these little surface level things. But then there's other friends where you're like, hey, how you doing? You're like, oh, this is just a bad week. It's just terrible. Things that unfolded, I was really struggling. And man, could you pray for me? Or, oh, I'm so excited. Hey, this unfolded in my life. And you gave all the details to. See, there's a difference even in our friendships. God wants quality. He doesn't want surface level stuff from you. And so getting into the Word and not treating it as some sort of routine, but you're actually spending time with the Lord, that's the key. That's the key. And if you're not doing that, and if you're not in the habit of doing it, then you are ripe when it comes to the enemy coming in and just taking you out. Completely taking you out. So it's very important. His second goal, and we saw this last week with Job, is to make you question and doubt God and your relationship with Him. If He can make you feel like God is against you, that He is somehow your enemy, why, God, would you do this to me? Well, then he can throw everything off. I mean, you won't be spending quality time with God if you think for some reason that your relationship with God is in that kind of a state. There's no way you're going to do that. And so he did that quite strategically with Job. Because remember, he took away, he attacked him on three fronts. What were the three fronts? The first one was 
family, which was the... He attacked him physically, right? Because he took away his family. He took away his family. He took away his substance. He took away all of his ability to make money, his security, everything. He took away everything. So he, took, he attacked him physically, and then he attacked him emotionally, right? Because he not only took all that stuff away, but then he, he, he uh, took away his health. His good health was now gone. He had these boils and these sicknesses that he had. His own wife was attacking him and saying, hey, you just need to curse God and die. That was straight up an emotional attack. And then he has his three friends coming along and saying, what did you do that was wrong? I mean, and now he begins questioning, and then through the process of his three friends, being attacked physically, being attacked emotionally, led to the attack spiritually, where then he's like, I, I want to I, I just take my arguments, and I want to talk to God. I want, I want him to answer me face to face. And then what did God do? He answered him face to face, and he set him straight. And he corrected him in the first two chapters of Job 38 and 39, where he says, listen, this is my relationship with you. This is who I am. I am going to set this straight. And Job was like, yeah, I'm a moron, more or less. That's exactly what he said. <laughs> I was speaking about things I didn't understand. And then he took the next two chapters, 40 and 41, to talk about the enemy, the behemoth and the Leviathan. And he explains who they are. And then Job's like, I get it completely, completely. I get it. And then that's when he finally repented thoroughly and uh, and he made it right with God and he made it right with his friends and actually was able to spare the, the lives of his friends because he made it right so that's what the Satan wants to do he wants to take the authority of the Word of God away from you he wants to remove your relationship with God and make you not walk with him and he's very good at doing that very very good at doing that and I think every single person in this room can attest to those two things because we've all had things unfold in our life where those two things are attacked for sure for sure. All right. And so now we're going into the third one. And this is another one that he is very, very good at. And it ties right back into Genesis chapter 3. So go ahead and turn your Bible to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. And we're going to see how Satan wants to get you to question and doubt the will of God for your life. He wants to get you to question and doubt the will of God for your life. Now there's a separate study that we've done in time past where there's seven wills of God for your life. Um, there are seven things particularly that God wants you to do, and if you are doing those things, that you will be in the center of God's will. Um, so if you're interested in knowing more about that, I do have notes. You can just let me know, and you can study that out for yourself later. But it's definitely worth studying and writing in your Bible. Um, I have those in my Bible, too, and they're a great reminder to me. And so there are seven wills of God that he wants you to do. And in this particular context, you have Jesus, who is obviously in the center of God's will, He's in the absolute center of God's will, and he is being attacked. He's absolutely being attacked. Okay, so just a little bit of context. You know, you know, Jesus is born, and then he grows up, and he spends 30 years growing up until he begins his earthly ministry. And there's two things that unfold before he begins his public ministry. In chapter 3, you have John the Baptist who is out preaching, and he's saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand, saying that the Messiah is going to come. And then you have verse 13 of chapter 3. Take a look at that. It says, Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? And Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it be so now, for thus it becometh to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. 
And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So before Jesus begins his public ministry, the first thing that we see here is that he gets baptized. Now, when you think about it, and especially with John the Baptist, this is a baptism of repentance. This is a baptism to, prep, to prepare the nation of Israel for the coming of the Messiah. That there's things in my heart and in my mind that I had wrong about the Messiah, and He's coming, and I, I need to be ready. And so this is that whole baptism. And here Jesus shows up, and He says, I need you to baptize me. And then John's like, ah, uh, you kidding? Like, no. If anything, you need to baptize me. And Jesus makes a great statement here in verse 15. He says, Suffer it be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. See, there are things that it may not be necessary. Like, Jesus didn't need to be baptized. I mean, he's like God and flesh. Like, you know. I think God would make an exception on that one, you know? I'm just, you know, just stretching that one a little bit. But here he's like, no, no, no. We have to do this because we, us, you and me, John, we need to fulfill all righteousness. This must be done. We have to do this. And there are times in your life where it's very important to go above and beyond what God has asked you to do just because you love God and you care about God and you care about His reputation. It's very important. Most Christians do the minimum. They do the bare minimum just to make it by. And it's not right. It's not right. Are you okay with God? Yeah, because you did the bare minimum. That's not what God's looking for. He's looking for you to go above and beyond what He's asked, so that way you actually have a part in His mission. And He loves that. And it puts a smile on God's face, because that's exactly what happened in verse 16. A voice from heaven, verse 17, where He says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. He didn't have to get baptized, necessarily. But he did it because he wanted to fulfill all righteousness. And he knew this is what God really wanted him to do deep down. So I think that's kind of cool. So that's the first thing that had to happen. And then the second thing is in chapter 4, verse 1. Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. So after being baptized, now he is taken out into the wilderness and he spends 40 days out in the wilderness and now he's going to be tempted by the devil. And then after these temptations unfold, then he begins his public ministry. You know, there is a, a, um, a thing that I share generally, you know, with, with some people about baptism where, you know, when you take a stand and you say, hey, I want to be baptized. Uh, the pattern of Jesus shows us that after he was baptized, then his faith was significantly tested. Significantly tested. He was driven out into the wilderness where he was alone, and his faith was tested severely to see where he would stand. And then he began his public ministry. There are times in our life where this is going to unfold, and it has to happen this way for two reasons, I think. I think one, and this is probably the most important one, for you to be able to step forward confidently in the ministry that God's given you. Because if your faith is never tested, how in the world do you know that you even have it? Like, how do you know that your faith is legit? How do you know that it's sound if it's never tested? Like, have you ever made, I remember I was thinking back on some of the stuff that I've done when I was younger, but have you ever made like, um, there were some science projects and stuff where you'd make stuff out of balsa wood, you know, and they would have to do like the drop test. I remember in, in fifth grade we did this where we took an egg and we built this balsa wood frame around that egg and then we would drop it to see if the egg would survive. The only way you can find out if the structure is going to hold is if you put it to the test, is if you take that thing and you drop it and see what happens. 
And so we can say that we love God all that we want. We can say that we walk with Him. We can be involved in discipleship. We can do all these things that good Christians do. But until your faith is actually tested and your back is against the wall, you have no idea what you really believe. Because there's a lot of people that make professions, but it's not sincere. There's nothing in here. There's a lot coming out of their mouth that make them sound good and may fool a whole lot of people. But God is doing this because He wants you to know what's on the inside of your heart. He wants you to see your weaknesses. He wants you to see your frailty so that way you can really rest in His arms when you're going through stuff. Because the only way you can make it through is because of the Lord. That's it. That's it. And so here, Jesus' faith is being tested. And that may sound strange because it's kind of like, well, he's God in, in human flesh. So, like, he's going to be successful. But you have to understand something. Yeah, he's God in human flesh. Human flesh. So his human flesh still had weaknesses. It's not like that, you know, Jesus was like some sort of Superman where he never got sick. You know, or that he was never tested, or that he was never hungry, or he was never tired, or he was never stressed out, or that he was never. No, the Bible says very clearly in Hebrews that he was tempted in every single point as we are, yet without sin. So he struggled with temptation. Now, he didn't act upon it, he didn't go through with it, but he struggled with it. And you can imagine, I mean, from a little kid, kids don't need to be taught how to disobey. They're just really good at it, right out of the womb. They just know. And you can, I can just imagine that Jesus growing up as a kid, there were times that he did not want to listen to his parents. There were times where he did not want to tell the truth. There were times where he was tempted to do this or to do that, or as a teenager, maybe he was in a, a compromising situation to compromise his purity. I mean, are we going to believe the Bible or not? Was he tempted in all points like we are yet without sin or not? So you need to think about it that way. This is not just like, well, yeah, well, Jesus is Jesus, so he's going to just be successful. No, he was tempted to all the extremes as we are, and yet he was without sin. So this is something that we absolutely can relate to. So let's take a look at these three temptations. So Jesus made a public profession of his faith. We talked about that. And immediately it was tested. That's letter A on your first point under number three. Immediately it was tested. Immediately. And so let's take a look at temptation number one, letter B. So temptation number one, as you're going to see here in a minute, this is the lust of the flesh. The lust of the flesh. And someone read for me Matthew 4, 2 through 4. Go ahead, Sam. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward in hunger. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But he answered and said, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Okay, so what are some observations that you see right out of the gate from verses 2, 3, and 4? Yeah. Jesus is uh, very hungry, and uh, Satan comes in and says, Oh, just make it bread. Yeah. Because you're God. Like, yeah. You make it bread. Absolutely. So, hey, you're hungry. I mean, can you imagine not eating for 40 days? Some of you can't even imagine eating for like 40 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Jamie's like, get with me. <laughs> yeah. So 40 days, he hasn't eaten a thing. I'm pretty sure you'd be just a touch hungry. Just a wee bit hungry. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And he can do anything if thou be the son of God. If. If you, thou be the son of God. Yeah. Go ahead. Oh, I, well, you kind of worded him. Go ahead. Like, 
Sam's also like picking on his pride a little bit. Like, if you can even do this, go ahead and do it. Yes. He's kind of like, I don't know the right wording for it, but he's like, Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that one. Yeah, yeah. He is. He's putting them on the spot. Now, most of us, especially those that are like a little competitive, you know. I would never. Never? Never. Never. I would never, never do that. Okay, so I'm, I'm a little bit competitive. So, so when it comes to people like that, it would be like, well, hey, if you can do this, I'm like, oh, oh, it's hard. <laughs> bam, 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 bam. I mean, turn all those stones into bread. It would be like a bakery out in the desert. It would be, it would be done. It would be done. And see, that's why I'm not Jesus, in case you're wondering. And so I, he does that. He knows, <laughs> he knows the right way. By the way, that'd probably be a good name for a bakery. Anyway, all right. <laughs> bakery in the desert. All right, so... If you can just imagine that for a second, like when you think about that and you, and you bring the reality behind it, he could have easily done that. I mean, when you read in the Bible, who is the person that actually created all of existence? Jesus did. Jesus was the one that, that brought everything into existence, that knit you together in your mother's womb. He's responsible for all that. It would have been nothing for him just to do that, just to do that in a heartbeat. He could have totally done that. But here Satan attacks him at the right place at the right time. If thou be the Son of God. If thou be the Son of God. Of course he is. And Satan knows that. Satan knows that is exactly how he words it. And he's so good at that. He'll take something and he'll just twist it just right to make you angry and frustrated. Oh, it's horrendous. What else do you notice from this temptation? Yeah. He answers him with scripture. Yes. Jesus answers him with scripture. Now, when you think about this, and I know we've talked about this, but this is worth reminding ourselves about. Okay, Jesus in John 1 is called the Word of God. Correct? Okay, so anything Jesus spoke was Scripture. Anything. Because He is the Word of God. He is the embodiment of the Word of God. So technically, if He speaks, the Word of God is speaking. I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty powerful. So when you think about that, he could have said anything that he wanted. Anything. God, to the devil, could have said anything that he wanted. And what did he choose to say? <laughs> Let's put that into audible words that everyone can hear. Anybody? Hold on. Yep, it's Deuteronomy 8.3. Deuteronomy 8.3, Jesus goes back to the written Word of God, and He uses that to combat the temptation. Uh, like, this might be, like, super ordinary and be, like, basic, but that's, like, I mean, this should be, this should be one of those things where you're, like, what, what? Like, why, why would He do that? I mean, this is God, like, God could have done anything. He could have thought anything, and the devil would have gone away. He could have, I mean, he, I mean, we already know from the crucifixion, he could have called down, you know, a legion of angels and just destroyed everyone and come off that cross or not even gone to the cross. He could have, he could have done anything, anything. And that's what he did. Deuteronomy 8.3. He quoted Deuteronomy 8. Okay. So this tells you something very significant that we miss and we take for granted all the time. This book is unbelievably powerful. 
more than what you ever even understand. More than what I even understand. This book is significant. Out of all the things that God could have used, all the power that Jesus had, he quoted Deuteronomy 8.3. And then we struggle to just do this in the morning. Do you understand what you actually have in your hands? What you have the privilege of opening every day? What you have the honor of being able to memorize in your heart and in your mind? I mean, I, I, I miss this. I, these are things that I, I completely miss from time to time because it's easy for us to get into these routines over and over again. And it's worthy looking at passages like this and to really understand what's going on here. This is major. Like, this is life and death stuff. And we take it so stinking lightly. And it's because we're out of sins. Because our brothers and sisters in time past didn't do this. I mean, they died for the scriptures. Many of our brothers and sisters that we're going to see in heaven one day, they put their lives on the line just for the written word of God, to just have a copy of the written word of God in their homes. And we have the privilege of being able to have it freely on our devices that we can search any word, any phrase, cross-references, anything, at any point in time. We have, that, we have that privilege. It's unbelievable. We have no excuse to not know the scriptures, to not love the scriptures, to not understand more about the scriptures than anybody else in human history. And yet we don't. We are the least fruitful out of all the churches throughout church age, through church history. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. And that's why he even uses this one. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. That is amazing. The reason why you can live a successful Christian life is not because of anything else other than your reliance and trust and security in the written words of God. And Jesus proved that. The lust of the flesh. You want to fight the lust of the flesh? It's the power of the word of God, for sure. Temptation number two, pride of life. Temptation number two is the pride of life. Pride of life. That's your blank there. Pride of life. Someone read Matthew 4, 5, through seven. Five, six, and seven. Really good, Carson. Then the devil taketh him up into the holy city, and setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple, and saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against the stone. Jesus said again or Jesus said unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Okay, so what do you notice? Observations, what do you see? Yeah. Yes. Totally. Okay, so let's say the first temptation unfolds in your life, and you're like, okay, I'm trusting in the power of the Word of God. All right, I'm going to use that. Okay, awesome. Gaining a victory. Second temptation comes, the enemy is going to take the very same thing that you use to combat that temptation, and he's going to turn it around on you, and then he's going to try to cause confusion. He's going to try to use your same tactics against you, and he will do that, and he's very good at that. And if you are not sound in your doctrine... I'm not just talking about knowing the right things and believing the right things, but I'm talking about proving the right things with the written word of God. You know, we talked about this a little bit at the guy's study. 
You know, I'm a big, big advocate of two or three witnesses. That principle you find in scripture is a huge, huge principle. Anytime that I say something spiritual, Anytime that I write something spiritual, anytime that I put something on your guys' study sheets, if you notice, even down on the bottom part of your study sheet, how many cross-references do I have for each point? Two or three, sometimes more. I don't want to give you a biblical concept and say, hey, just trust me, I know what I'm talking about. No, I want to give you something and then show you from the scriptures of why it's true. Because who gives a rip of what I think? Like, what, what does my opinion have to do with anything? I am as weak and frail as any one of you. I have my own weaknesses, my own insecurities, my own failures, my own things that, I've, that I still struggle with from time to time. I need the Bible just as much as you do. So it's not true because I say it is. It is true because the Bible says it is. And so here you have the devil taking that right against God, and he's attacking it back at him again. And so you better know what you believe, you better know why you believe it, and you better know how to prove it. You got to know how to prove it. Or else, how do you know it's actually true? You can be raised in our church and you can be taught sound doctrine. And I am willing to bet almost everything that you've been taught in this church since you've been little, and for most of you that have grown up here, is sound. And it is right on and it is dead on. But don't take it just because of that. You need to know. You need to know for sure that what we have been teaching you for your entire life and everything that, that is spoken from this place or even from the main pulpit from Pastor Tom is the Word of God. You have to do that. You have to. Because there's going to come a day where there is no Pastor Tom, where there is no Stephen, where there is no mom and dad. And then what are you going to do? Then what are you going to do? I mean, I've thought a lot about this. It kills me to even think about my parents passing away. They're just, they're getting older and it's the fact of life and it, it kills me. I can't, I can't think of that. It's just hard. But I know that when my parents pass away, I know what I'm going to do. I know what I'm going to do. And it's not because of them. It's because I've taken the time to dive into this book and say, I believe this because of what it says. It has nothing to do with my parents. And many of the things that I believe, my sisters don't believe. And it's because they've chosen to believe whatever they want to believe. Now, they're still saved. And they still preach the gospel, and they're still doing the work of God to the best of their ability. But there are things that they, that they believe that I don't agree with. And it's not because I don't love my sisters. It's because they're wrong. It's because the Bible says something different. And I've taken the time to find those things out. And you need to do the same. What else do you notice from this one? From this temptation? You get what was this hit one more time? He's still just goes straight to scripture. Yes, Jesus goes straight to scripture again. To combat this, he goes straight to scripture again, which we already harped on that one, so I won't do too much more of that. We'll keep going. He just reemphasizes that same point. What other observation? What's the temptation? Gavin, you want to say oh, something for that? I was about to say, uh, the devil took him to the holy city. Okay. So, yep. Yeah. So the holy city is. Jerusalem. Jerusalem, yep. So he's in the midst of Jerusalem. And where is he at in Jerusalem? What does it say? In the temple. Okay, and who's worshipped at the temple? God is. Yeah, he is. God is Jehovah. Okay, so that's significant. And what does he have him, what's the temptation? What does he want him to do at the temple? Good. To prove that he's God. 
So he's at the temple, and I don't know like what the time frame is, like when, what's unfolding here, but my guess is he took him to the pinnacle of the temple at a time where many people were there, and there was a lot of activity, and there's a lot of stuff that was going on. And so he takes him to the pinnacle of the temple, and he says, hey, throw yourself down, and before you hit the ground, have your angels rescue you. I mean, what would that have done in Jerusalem? Yes, it would have been. It would have been a sign for the Jews to believe that he was the Messiah. So he's saying, hey, you know what? Let's just cut all this stuff. Forget your earthly ministry. All these things that I know you want to do and you want to do this. Let's just, let's just cut to the chase. Go ahead and go there and just, just easily. Just throw yourself down and prove that you are this supernatural being that everyone's going to... I mean, that would have been on the headline of every stinking newspaper. I mean, even CNN, who doesn't even report news, would have reported that one. I mean, there's so many things that would have unfolded that it would have gone just far and wide about the Messiah is here. We saw him. He was on the pinnacle of the temple. We were worshiping Jehovah. He's on the pinnacle of the temple, and he threw himself down, and he didn't die. That was amazing. We know that he's God. What a temptation. He could have gone through just all the way to the end without any sort of suffering, no time, cut all the corners. We like to cut corners. Many of you like to cut corners. <laughs> if I can cut a corner here and get this job done faster, then great. No, he wasn't going to do that. And then Jesus says, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Don't do it. So that's a good one. All right, next one. Temptation number three. The lust of the eye. The lust of the eye. Verses 8 through 11. Someone read that one. Okay, go ahead, Alana. Okay, observations. Let's do it again. Third time's a charm. What do you see, Emily? Um, Satan kind of like comes, sorry. Uh, <laughs> Satan comes like straight out and is just like, like, this is mine and you can't have it unless you bow down to me. And he's looking again. He's showing his pride that he had when he fell first. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, he's showing him all the kingdoms. This is all mine, and I will freely give it to you if you just worship me. What else? Yeah. Uh, Jesus still quotes scripture, but he also says, Get thee hence, Satan. Yeah. So it's kind of like that one verse that says, like, Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So yeah. Like, not only is Jesus using scripture, but he's actually saying, like, Get away from Satan. Yeah. Like, yeah, that's good. That's good. That's really good. Yeah. Sorry. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it says, And behold, angels came and ministered unto him. Mm -hmm. And I always like that part because even if you are like a leader or something, you still need to be ministered to. And yeah. You still need to be taken care of. And he, like it shows even Jesus needed that. And mm -hmm. he was fasting for 40 days and then he just endured this spiritual warfare. Yes. And like he needed a refreshing just like we all do sometimes. So it kind of helps that like he was human. He did like, like we're talking about earlier. Yeah. He's just like, yeah, that's good. That's really good. Any other observations? Yeah. He was uh, brought up to an exceeding high mountain. Yes. Yep. <laughs> so exceeding like, high mountain. Yeah. see like a lot of things. Yeah. And he says he showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a, what does it say? Glory. Yep. 
And it says where it says, it says that the devil take them up to the Sinai mountain and show them all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And so he says, all right, in a moment of time, he did that. He showed them all the kingdoms of the world. From this high mountain, he showed, this is all mine. This whole world, this is all mine. This is all mine. And, I, and here's the thing. That is a legitimate statement. Like when the devil made that statement, it is his. At this point in time, it's his. Now there's going to come a point in time where it's not his any longer. And that happens in Revelation 19 and 20. When Christ comes back and he takes it by force, it, it becomes his. In fact, it says in those passages leading up to it, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So here he has all these kingdoms and he shows them all of them. He's like, hey, you know what? You don't have to go. You don't, I mean, you don't have to follow through on all the stuff you're going to do. I'll just give it to you. I'll just give it to you. What's interesting to me is when you really study this out, you find out this is the exact same thing that unfolds between Satan and the Antichrist in Revelation. There's a passage in Revelation, in fact it's Revelation 13, 1 through 8, where the Antichrist is given all the authority and power of the devil. So I don't think it's a coincidence that you have a scenario that happens in the future in Revelation where the devil gives the Antichrist, the Antichrist, all the power and the authority of his kingdoms. And here you have Satan offering Jesus Christ the same thing. Can you imagine what would have happened? Like, just take a second to think about that. If Jesus would have actually fallen down and worshipped the devil at this point and received all the kingdoms, then the Christ would have now become what? The Antichrist. And then now all the events that you see written in Revelation would have unfolded from the devil's perspective. This is what the devil is trying to do. He was trying to turn Jesus Christ into the Antichrist to fulfill his will and control the planet and usurp God's plan and authority. It's exactly what he's doing. And it's not a coincidence that that is the third temptation, the lust of the eye. Because the lust of the eye is a very, very, very powerful temptation. Very powerful temptation. Because we see this entire world with our eyes. We see that people have things that we don't. We see certain things that we lust after and we desire. The lust of the eyes are, is a very powerful temptation. And it's not a coincidence that it's the third one that's here. And again, what does Jesus use? Scripture. Scripture. He uses Deuteronomy 6, 13, and 14, and Deuteronomy 10, 20 here, where he tells, Dayton, tells the devil to completely leave. And so those are the three temptations. And the devil's not going to do anything different in your life. He's going to use the lust of the flesh, he's going to use the pride of life, and he's going to use the lust of the eye in your life to get you to fall. He wants your flesh and the desires of your flesh to be fulfilled. He wants you to think that you're somebody, that you're important. And he wants you to look at things and enviously go after him with covetousness and abandon God altogether. And of course, Jesus was successful through all three of these temptations. And then he begins his public ministry. If you look down in chapter 4, verse um, 17, it says, From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he goes out and he actually picks his disciples. And then he continues his public ministry. So this is the pattern that you see in the scriptures. And so here is Satan's goal. Let's finish this out. Satan's goal. Satan's goal is to get you to question and doubt the will of God for your life. Going into these three temptations, Jesus knew God's will for his life. Jesus knew who he was. He knew who God was. He knew exactly what God wanted him to do. And when he went through these three temptations, his confidence in God's will for his life was tested through the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, and the lust of the eye. And I am telling you today, it's the same for you. 
The devil, your enemy, your flesh, this world, wants to get you outside of God's will by getting you to fall in these three areas. And there are many people, and I've said this before, there are many people that have compromised God's will for their life where they've ended up doing things for the rest of their life they should have never done. They married people they should have never married. They are involved in things they should have never been involved in. That God may even call them to be pastors and missionaries and, and pastors' wives and missionaries' wives. And they were never able to do it because they were completely disqualified because they fell in these three areas and they never came back. And I, I've seen it time and time again. It's very few the people that really want to buckle down and do what God has called them to do. But it is possible. Jesus did it, and he had a tremendous earthly ministry, and you can do it as well. So what are we going to do? What are we going to do? How are we going to combat this? Well, obviously with the Word of God for sure, but the things that Jesus showed us, that God shows us through Matthew chapter 4, what do we need to remember? All right, first of all, you need to remember the constant battle between the world's way and God's way. You've got to do that. 1 John 2 talks about that. talks about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. And that those things are going to pass away. In Romans 12, 2, who has that one memorized? Come on, Romans 12, 2. Never mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Yes, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice. You're presenting your bodies as a living sacrifice. So you can prove what is God's will. So you have to know there's always going to be a tension. Okay? So here's a, here's a good test for you. In your life, there's always an, an element of tension in your life between the world's way and God's way. If you don't feel a, any element of tension, then you've just given up the fight. You've just kind of completely, you're down and out, and you're letting the world have its way with you, and you're just going along for the ride. There should always be an element of tension. You should always be recognizing that there is the world's way and there's God's way. Because when you're doing what God wants you to do, there is a constant resistance against the things of this world. Constantly. Because you're going to want to do the things of the world. You're going to want to just go. But you're going to have to go against it. And it takes a lot of effort, frankly, to do that. And you can feel the pressure of going against the world. So if you don't feel any pressure then you're not walking with the Lord. There's no way. There's absolutely no way. Or you're compromised, or you have some giant hole in your walk where you're letting the world have its way with you, and it just eases that pressure. But when you're following the Lord, there's going to always be pressure. But here's the beautiful thing, what I love about God, is that He always leads the way, and He makes it a lot easier. And so if you've ever walked through like any sort of strong current or anything like that, when you have... Uh, something in there that's blocking part of the current. Or like, let's say you're following another person. It's much easier to follow another individual as you're walking through current because the person in front of you is breaking that current. It releases some of that pressure. And so the closer you are to God, the easier it is to walk against the things of this world because He's breaking that current. But the farther back you get, that current rips back around and then it increases its strength again. And that's why we fall, because you can't do it alone. You've got to walk closely with the Lord. You have to. The second thing you have to remember is that you cannot fight with the, flesh, the flesh with the flesh. You cannot fight the flesh with the flesh. I wish we had time to go to Romans 8, but we just don't. Romans 8 is a great one that you need to take a look at later. You cannot fight your flesh with the flesh. It is not going to work. I don't care how much willpower you have. I don't care how disciplined you might be. It is never going to work. 
especially with your deepest, darkest struggles that you don't want anyone to know. It is never going to work. The only way that you can fight the temptation is with this next point that we're going to talk about. You need to remember where the power to fight resides. And that is in two things. And we saw this in Matthew chapter 3 and in chapter 4. The Spirit of God and the Bible. The power to fight successfully resides in the Spirit of God and in the Scriptures. If you notice in Matthew chapter 3, when he was baptized, the Spirit of God descended upon him, and the voice of God spoke and said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And then in chapter 4, when temptation 1 came, what did Jesus use? Scripture. Scripture. Temptation 2 came, he used? Scripture. Temptation 3, he used? Scripture. So the only way this is going to work is through the Spirit of God and the Scriptures. Which means, if you're lost, you got no hope. If you don't have the Spirit of God in you, you cannot be successful. There's no way. Absolutely no way. And if you don't know your Bible, you're not going to be successful. You're not. The Spirit of God is always leading you to do what's right. And you need to learn how to submit to His authority. And then you have to believe the Word of God, and the Spirit of God is going to use the Word of God in order to combat these temptations in your life. That's the only way you're going to make it. And that's the only way to stay in the center of God's will. Now that may sound routine, but I'm telling you, you need to chew on this. Because if you really chew on this, and you really believe this, there are things in your life that you've never been able to overcome that you will be able to. Hands down. There are things that you've never been able to overcome that you will be able to overcome if you actually take this to heart and apply it to your life. And it's not true just because I said it. It's true because of just what we read. Matthew 3, Matthew 4. It's exactly what Jesus did. And this is something super significant. If Jesus chose this route, then why would we choose a different route? Like if this is what the Son of God, if this is what He did, why would we think that something else would be better? It's because we're fools, that's why. So don't be foolish, be wise. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together this morning. I pray that you would open up our understanding with these things and that we would be obedient to you. It's very simple, but very, very true. And thank you for the reminder for me too. These are things that I really needed to remember, especially with that first point that we talked about with the Word of God and and how much power actually is in the written Word of God and how it's easy for us just to think otherwise. So help us. We need your help. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.